Our guest today is Nancy Owen Lewis. She is a cultural anthropologist. She is scholar in residence at the School for Advanced Research in Santa Fe. Her new book is Chasing the Cure in New Mexico, Tuberculosis and the Quest for Health, published by the Museum of New Mexico Press. Tuberculosis is a disease that's been around since the beginning of human history, but the bacterium that caused it wasn't discovered until 1882. It was then another six decades until an antibiotic cure was found, and in the late 19th century, tuberculosis was the number one cause of death in the United States. Nancy's book is the story of the many health seekers who came to New Mexico to try to find relief. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Well, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. What was it about New Mexico that drew so many people here? Why was it considered medically beneficial? Well, as you mentioned, there was no known cure for the disease until the mid-1940s, and doctors instead prescribed climate because it was believed that sunshine, dry air, preferably in a high altitude, could heal this disease or at least help you recover your strength. And the other thing was that territorial officials in our long efforts to attain statehood and to develop uh, New Mexico stressed its climate as a place where people could heal. There are some amazing photographs in your book. I mean, it's a wonderful book that's not only well-written, but really well-illustrated with tons of archival material about the people and places and buildings that tell this story of tuberculosis. And one of them that was really striking was a woman sitting there with a little mirror putting the Mm -hmm. sun, the rays of the sun down her throat. Yes, that was a technique called heliotherapy. And that particular photograph was from Valmora sanatorium. So if just being outside in the sun was not enough, they thought if they could use a mirror and direct the sunshine down your throat, that would aid in the healing process. But basically, many doctors believe that what you were trying to do was to build up your body sufficiently to throw off the disease. Was it actually true? I mean, scientists looking at this now, does a climate like this actually cure TB better than, say, a colder, damper climate? I think there were some things that were really therapeutic about New Mexico's climate. We know today that vitamin D is healthy, and so sunshine and fresh air would be healthful. So in that sense, I think our climate would have been helpful, more so than a cold, damp climate. And certainly clean air, fresh air, is healthier than the often smoke-filled air that you found in cities back east. A lot of people who came here recovered, and a lot didn't. People who came in the late stages of the disease really didn't have a chance. But the people who did recover, was it considered a genuine cure? Were there relapses? Were they then immune from the disease forever after? It's a really interesting question. And there were some physicians, for example, that went into remission, I think believed they had recovered, started their own sanatoriums, and then later ended up dying from the disease. But there were others like Dr. Frank Mara, who established Sunmount Sanatorium, almost died from TB, came here 
and lived to the age of 90. Yeah. So there were just remarkable stories. And the human body, you know, reacts differently. So I think some people did heal and some eventually died of it. Some people who came to New Mexico for the cure came with money and they could afford good medical care. Others came with practically nothing. They'd used up their savings. They'd become almost destitute, but they scraped together whatever they could and then came here. What happened to them? The people that came without sufficient funds to stay in a sanatorium, and sanatorium care was expensive, basically chased the cure on their feet, as they said, and some of them established tents in vacant lots. You read reports of them sitting on street corners. There was one man in Silver City had recently arrived, hemorrhaged to death, died before they could summon any medical authorities. This became a huge problem. They called it the indigent problem. And physicians talked to their colleagues back east and said, unless people have sufficient money to afford care here, they need to stay home. And there were actually articles in the New Mexico Medical Journal stating that, yes, our climate is very therapeutic, but it only really works if you have sufficient money to take care of yourself. There were also some kind of crazy myths that you were supposed to come here and maybe live in a tent or wherever and then work really, really hard. So people came and did kind of like heavy-duty ranching and things like that and didn't necessarily do so well. No, (laughs) they didn't. That was called heroic therapy, and that was really common in the 1800s that doctors would write articles that the best place you could be is on a ranch and once you master the ways of the inscrutable bronco and ride the range with the cowboys you could heal from this disease but by the late 1800s they were beginning to have second thoughts and one physician uh, dr edward trudeau a new york physician had tried this heroic therapy had gone on a pack trip and it practically killed him and so he decided to go to the adirondack mountains which is his favorite place to die. And so he lay outside in the sunshine and waited for death to come. But instead, he regained his appetite, he (laughs) recovered his health, and decided to establish a sanatorium based on the treatment he discovered, where you put up your feet, you don't ride the range with the cowboys. The book is called Chasing the Cure. That word, chasing, that was like the term that people used? That is the term that they used. And it began to mean a very specific mode of treatment where your entire life, especially if you're seeking treatment in a sanatorium, was regulated, where you spent enormous hours sleeping, resting, eating, because eating copious amounts of food was one of the key elements of sanatorium treatment because TB is a wasting disease. People that had it became very emaciated and one of the signs that you were recovering was that you gained weight. But the average diet was like something like 4,500 calories, which would have what you might feed a farmhand for people that had absolutely no appetite whatsoever. Now, there was a myth that native people and Hispanos here in New Mexico did not contract tuberculosis. What was the reality? 
Yeah, and that's something that I, I wondered about when I began my research, and I understood that this was a uh, advertising method to try to convince people that our climate was healthy, because you couldn't really say New Mexico's climate is so salubrious unless you also provided an indication that local people were healthy and didn't suffer from the disease. And so I began looking at the records because I was wondering, was there information to the contrary? Was this indeed true? Well, by the beginning of the 1900s, information began to surface to suggest the exact opposite. By around 1908, it was one of the Indian agents at the Mescalero Apache Reservation said that tuberculosis was so severe there that unless something happened to interfere, that population would be extinct within 50 years. So the federal government established sanatorium schools because children were especially at risk for this disease. A lot of them acquired it in boarding schools. They were sent back to live with their families, and they spread it to their families. Four sanatorium schools were established between 1910 and 1921. And then I was looking what at the Hispanic population. What about them? Well, by 1910, the New Mexico medical profession at one of their annual meetings began to share information all of them, many of them had patients that were native Hispanic people that were suffering from the disease. They were very, very concerned because the whole healthcare industry, the sanatorium industry, was geared towards the out-of-state health seekers. There weren't any facilities to address their needs. And this ultimately led to the establishment of a public health department in 1919. We were the last of the 48 states to have one, but we were also one of the last states. Now, there were political as well as medical factors in New Mexico's becoming a destination for TB patients. And it's interesting that Texas took exactly the opposite tack. They said, don't come here. We essentially don't want you. I can't remember what the language was, but it was, we don't, you know, we do not want TB patients. New Mexico did. And part of that was the U.S. government's desire to get more Anglo-Americans into the territory. Is that right? Well, I think that was a factor, but it was also a factor of territorial officials wanting New Mexico to become a state. Texas was already a state. California was already a state, and they tried to stop so many health seekers from coming there. I mean, it was all right if you had uh, could afford sanatorium treatment, but we didn't have that in New Mexico. And one of the strategies to gain statehood uh, because the powers that be in Washington often said, well, New Mexico is so foreign, you know, I don't think they deserve to be a, a state at this point, was to get more Americans to settle here. And during the late 1800s, early 1900s, it didn't matter if they had TB because officials didn't believe this disease was contagious despite the discovery of the bacillus because one of the claims they made after the bacillus was discovered is that, well, it doesn't live in high altitudes, so we're fine here in New Mexico. Another motive here in New Mexico was the profit motive. There's a profit motive in healthcare now. There was then. The TB sanatorium was seen as a potentially profitable business for entrepreneurs. It was also considered a source of economic development for towns and cities. How did that actually work out? Well, it very much became a major industry in New Mexico 
after the first military and federal sanatoriums were established, New Mexico got on the bandwagon, and I counted there were at least 70 sanatoriums established here, some of them run by church-run organizations, others by private physicians. And in communities where sanatoriums were established, there were businesses that grew up around that industry providing goods and services. So it was a, a major source of income. It didn't last. It certainly didn't survive very well the Depression because sanatoriums are very expensive to run and they do require a large number of relatively well-off individuals to fill the beds. And by the 1920s, your physicians back east are saying, it's not the climate that's important, it's the care that you get. No point in going out to someplace like New Mexico when you can get as good a treatment here. The quality and the size of the sanatoriums varied quite a lot. Give us a sense of what they were like. I mean, they were in different cities and towns around New Mexico. They were in Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Silver City, Las Vegas. Yes. I mean, you had the church-run sanatorium. St. Vincent started as a sanatorium. So did St. Joseph, started by the Sisters of Charity. In some ways, although they all had their cottages, which became a, an ideal way to treat patients, they also had their hospitals, and so more on the traditional basis. And then you had places like Sunmount Sanatorium in Santa Fe, which really catered to your artists and writers. Uh, a lot of whom uh, stayed in cottages which were built to maximize your exposure to fresh air. You had Valmora, which was established as basically an EAP program, employee assistance program for tubercular employees from Chicago-based companies. It was actually chartered in the state of Illinois, and so employees that suffered from TB, from International Harvester, Marshall Fields, Carson Perry Scott were sent there to recover. And it was the same model where you had uh, hospital facilities as well as cottages where people could stay to maximize their exposure to fresh air. And the average length of treatment in most of these facilities that was recommended was about nine months. And after nine months, many of these people, especially people who figured out they had the disease at a relatively early stage, then basically were fine. What the sanatoriums tried to advertise was to get people that were in the incipient stages of the disease. But in matter of fact, most people didn't really go to a doctor until the disease was a little further along. So the number of incipient patients compared to those that were in the more moderate or even severe stages was was relatively small. And a lot of them that did go through the nine months or whatever amount of treatment it took, and if they did recover sufficiently or went into remission, decided to remain in New Mexico because the medical profession also said that you're at risk if you go back to the climate where you contracted the disease. And some people didn't necessarily want to stay here. Many people did. It's just like today, they fell in love with it. Right, right. Yeah. And so many artists and writers, 
a lot of people who came here for TB-related reasons who then became politicians. Billy the Kid's mother came here with tuberculosis. She died. Her husband, Billy the Kid, and and his brother's stepfather kind of abandoned them. They kind of went down the wrong path. I mean, you have here what it seems like is a disease that really changed the face, the culture, the demographics of the state. Yeah, it really did. And it's a, a missing part, at least it's not told very often, of the Billy the Kid story. It's how he got here. Yeah. And he was apparently, from everything I've read, very close to his mother, was doing well in school. There was no problems. But it was her death and basically the abandonment by the, the young stepfather. One thing led to another. He leaves New Mexico to Arizona territory looking for his stepfather who doesn't want to have anything to do with him, and he comes back. Billy the Kid wanted for murder. But it did. It had so many dimensions. This is really a history of New Mexico. Yeah, very much so. And and statehood happened during the epidemic. Yes, it very much happened. And, you know, and I started looking at the demographics, and it did change our demographics. The thousands of health seekers that came out here And you did have more, quote, Americans or Anglos, which might have pleased the folks in Washington who had these allegations. But I have to say, you know, the New Mexico territorial governors that came out here who were appointed by the president were basically Anglo, not all of them, uh, most of them, raved about the local people. So I want to make that clear so there was nothing wrong. It was just perceptions by the powers that be. Although there were these, I mean, you have in the book this kind of racist ad put out by the Silver City Chamber of Commerce, where they're trying to sell Silver City as a destination. And let me find the quote. The ad says, what a wonderful curative place Silver City is. And one of the benefits was that it's a hundred, it's a long way from the Mexican border out of all possible reach of Mexicans. It was the during the Pancho Villa raids, and I think that's the backstory to that one. Ah, right. Yeah. That makes sense. Very interesting. One of the things, and this is kind of an aside, but that was kind of interesting to me, I mean, reading through the book, a lot of buildings burned down. They did, and it spurred a lot of people to get fire insurance, which was a good thing because we have these wonderful sandborn maps of our towns showing these sanatoriums, but it was a real risk. Santa Fe, St. Vincent Sanatorium was originally a very stately second French Empire style building, uh, tallest building in Santa Fe. And they had fire insurance, but they had failed, the Sisters of Charity had failed to renew their entire policy. And it caught fire and burned down. They were unable to rebuild until about 1910, and the building that they did rebuild is still there. But yes, it was a huge problem. And in Las Vegas, one building burned several times. Yes, and then you had the Holy Cross Sanatorium, which was kind of going under anyway. It was in the 1930s. It was expensive to operate. The Sisters of Holy Cross were deeply in debt, The buildings caught fire when it currently wasn't occupied, and the head nun actually thought it was a blessing because they had enough 
of the insurance policy to settle their debts. You mentioned a moment ago that New Mexico wasn't doing so well in terms of public health. And in 1914, New Mexico was inspected by the U.S. Mm -hmm. government. It wasn't a state yet. It was a territory. It received a score of zero out of 1,000 <laughs> as a public health rating. What? Yeah, yes, yes. It was a, a survey conducted by the American Medical Association. And, yeah, when the report came out in 1916, it had got, got a score of zero and folks in New Mexico, physicians, politicians, f officials, were incredibly upset. And as one politician wrote, New Mexico sells health, but it doesn't know whether she's healthy or not. And in a way, the report was a blessing because it spurred the establishment of a public health association that ultimately led to establishing a public health department. You know, we didn't collect vital records, statistics, so we didn't have data. We didn't know what our TB rates were, and we didn't collect data sufficiently until 1929 when we were considered a death registration state sufficiently to be counted with the national census. So in a sense, this disease and the establishment of all of these sanatoriums in New Mexico was really kind of the first step in, I mean, to the extent that we have a functional medical system now, to a real public health system. It absolutely spurred the establishment of it. I mean, that was one of the reports. But the other one was that in 1918, there were a number of local men who had been discharged from the military. They had been drafted, but they were not allowed to participate in World War I because they were diagnosed with tuberculosis. And Governor Washington Lindsay was very upset about this and tried to find facilities for them. He contacted all of these sanatoriums, and they would say, well, we'd like to help out, but our beds are all filled with out-of-state health seekers. He eventually got a Dr. Kerr from the Public Health Service to come and do a survey of New Mexico. The 1918 flu broke out, and so Dr. Kerr helped organize efforts for that initiative. But when he finished, he wrote a report, and he said, this state has real public health problems, and the tuberculosis rates in particular are really incredibly high for both Native Americans and your local Hispanic people. You need a public health department, and you need it now. And that report was really the spur that helped establish a department the following year. When an antibiotic cure was found in the 1940s, everything changed. What happened to these centers? I mean, now you know, no longer needed to go across the country to be cured. You take an injection, you take a pill, whatever, you're cured. What happened? So what happened, it took a little while. For a while, in some of the sanatoriums, they administered the drugs there. But, you know, like you said, it wasn't necessary. You could do it just as easily and certainly a lot more cheaply on an outpatient basis. And this was the final death to this movement. And one by one, they closed. And in many communities, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Roswell, Las Vegas, the sanatoriums formed the basis for the current health care system. What's our current health Hospital in Santa Fe, Christus St. Vincent, evolved out of the sanatorium. Same thing with Albuquerque. 
Presbyterian uh, Hospital is located in the same location as Presbyterian Sanatorium. Loveless is where St. Joseph was. The same thing was true in many communities around the state. So it had this really positive impact in that sense. It must have been really fun and interesting for you doing this research and traveling around New Mexico and seeing what remains and how it's evolved. That was one of my favorite parts of this whole project was tracking down these sanatoriums. And I remember wanting to find the state sanatorium because we didn't have a facility for local people that provided free treatment until 1936. And I found it. It was outside Socorro, several miles in the little community, if you call it that, of of Escondido. And it was a a ruin, a total ruin. And there was a big sign that it was a paintball competition site. Oh, my God. (laughs) So we, we photographed that. I was looking for Holy Cross. It was one of the biggest sanatoriums a few miles outside Deming. Found that. That was a complete ruin. Uh, My son, Jonathan Lewis, was a photographer on the project, and I think his favorite two places were those sites. Um, It had many um, interesting photo ops, but some of them were were still there, and they they had been converted into hotels, bed and breakfasts. We stayed in the Ellis Bed and Breakfast in Lincoln, formerly the ranch sanatorium. Um, I stayed in the old operating room. A lovely place, wonderful (laughs) breakfast, and great ambiance for my project. Very interesting. And you have been talking about putting together a little tour that people can go on. Yes, I have. A Chasing the Cure tour of of certainly starting perhaps with northern New Mexico, where so many of the facilities or locations are still intact. And I've talked to my colleague, Jean Schaumburg, about having a tour through her company called Word Harvest. And we could certainly look at the old Sunmount Sanatorium in Santa Fe, um, St. Vincent, look at the old uh, sanatorium that was in the Romero Mansion, go up to Las Vegas, see what's left of St. Anthony's, the Plaza Hotel, where there were so many tuberculars at one time. They had a resident physician go on up to... Las Vegas Hot Springs, where Doc Holliday chased the cure. Um, I have a certificate. He was a member of the Lungers Club there. Lungers. Lungers Club, and didn't do well. He did die of TB. Um, If we could look at the the old Montezuma Hotel, um, which also provided services for health seekers, and ultimately up to Valmora, um, which is still there. This might take a couple of days, but it would be a beautiful tour. It would be really interesting, and we would have s- such wonderful stories to share. Nancy Owen Lewis is author of the book Chasing the Cure in New Mexico, Tuberculosis and the Quest for Health. It's published by the Museum of New Mexico Press. Nancy is a cultural anthropologist, a scholar-in-residence at the School for Advanced Research in Santa Fe. They are on the web at sarweb.org. Nancy, thank you so much for being with us on the Radio Cafe. Well, thank you for having me.